Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. Both can be true at the same time. My name is Channing Martinez, co-host, and I'm here in the Strategy Center studio with Eric Mann, one of our co-hosts. Boy, do we have a full show for you today, and I kid you not, we have at least five components, if not more. First, We'll be joined in studio with Pastor Kelvin Sauls, founder of Black Alliance for Just Immigration and a member of Clergy for Black Lives. And we'll be in conversation about his article, Moral Might Over Military Might, Pathways to a Just Peace in Palestine, published in the LA Sentinel. Then we have the Voices Sing Along, which is coming back. Make sure you sing along. Eric will be singing along with Johnny Ace's Pledging My Love, followed by a film review of Brother by myself, Channing Martinez. Brother, you can watch it on Netflix right now. Then we'll have two upcoming events. This Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m., as you know, KPFK is hosting a fundraiser at the Culver Palms United Methodist Church. Make sure you attend. Strategy and Soul Film Club will be hosting its first film showing of the year, yes, on the first day of Black History Month and what I call Black History Year on February 1st uh, from 6 p.m. on. And lastly, it's the King Birthday Week. So we'll hear the introduction to Eric's Revolutionary King article, Dr. Martin Luther King is Marching with the People of Palestine. celebrate the good fortune of all those people who were forcibly removed from their places and from their homes of many many generations and who are now going back to those places we especially like to celebrate the people of district 6 when we were in the states in the 60s Hotep Galeta was a great piano player from district 6 so, hey everybody, welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. We're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org, and also check out our terrific website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. So I'm here in the studio with Jenny Martinez the co-host and producer of the show, and Reverend Kevin Sauls, who is uh, doing really important work at the intersection of both faith-based organizing in South Central and South Africa, and playing a leadership role in the Black Alliance for Just Immigration and Clergy for Black Lives. All right, did I do okay? You did great. All right. Thank you, Eric. So, Kevin, <laughs> really happy to have you here. 
we're going to come back and have a whole show in South Africa. Yes. But let's start with some of the... I, he wrote a great article, by the way. That's what started this, chanting, encouraged this. It's called Moral Might Over Military Might, Pathways to a Just Peace in Palestine. I think most important, actually, it was in the LA Sentinel because that's a very important black newspaper that has a broad united front, but I think that your point of view might have been uh, the first time they ever read this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I have some dear friends at the uh, LA Times, and they they uh, they respect uh, my perspective, and I think that's that's how it is with relationships. You know, there's there's mutual respect, and um, and we focus on the the destination, right? And that's the outcomes right. that we all seek. And Absolutely. So, so I really appreciate them and just uh, work we continue to do together. Oh no, I mean that's the whole. As I said about the Black United Front, is yes. that we work at the Strategy Center. Maybe our central theoretical premise is anti-sectarianism. Mm-hmm. That if you can't work with everybody, there's no hope. That's right. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the theoretical concepts you're hearing. Uh, maybe one. Of the first thing is the uh, disaggregation of Zionism and Judaism. Why don't you talk about that? You know, I call myself a faith-rooted right. uh, community organizer, and I was reared in the tradition of uh, Desmond Tutu and Alan Busak right. and um, Stanley Muhoba. You know, uh, those. Uh, I, I mean, people sometimes don't know that a person like Steve Biko, yes. right, you know, really uh, studied theology. So, so for us, you know, uh, there is a very, very important um, intention of understanding the spirituality of uh, settler colonization and military occupation. So when we were fighting apartheid. <coughs> You know, we were dealing with not just the ideology of a party, but the theology of a party, because the Dutch Reformed Church, you know, uh, developed and deployed a perverted version of Calvinism um, that the Puritans used, you know, coming to, you know, uh, these lands. And and so it was only when, through the work of the South African Council of Churches, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was the general secretary then, as well as Reverend Dr. Alan Busak, who then was leading the United Democratic Front in South Africa. Mm. He was a Dutch Reform pastor, but with a black congregation. Uh, he eventually then becomes the president of the, uh, the International Alliance of Reform Churches. It was only when that alliance made the following declaration that apartheid was a heresy. That started the delegitimization of apartheid, and it was over then, because that was the foundational aspect that the apartheid regime used to justify. And it's all about the fact that the settlers, God's chosen, right, to come and save us, you know, uh, Africans. They, They knew better. They... Uh, they had better, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, and so while we were fighting, you know, apartheid, you know, um, uh, and I was, you know, uh, a Christian, you know, basically we then developed the Kairos document. And really the Kairos document 
was a document that then started the work, also continued the work, I should say, of then decolonizing Christianity from apartheid. Right. We had to do that because literally apartheid colonized Christianity and utilized it yes. to then dehumanize everybody, including white people. I think that's very, very important. And so when I talk about you know, um, the, the, the decolonization of uh, Judaism from Zionism, it is because unfortunately Judaism right now is caught in the entrapment of an ideology that really is committed to dehumanize everybody and is riding on the coattails Judaism for theological or spiritual justification. Uh, so that, that statement is rooted you know, in that because of the, the similarities of what went down in 1948 around the construction and implementation of apartheid and the construction and implementation of the, you know, uh, of the state of Israel by way of the Na'akba. In the same year? Same here. That's fine, yeah. yeah. Same here. Um, you know, you're talking about Namibia. I, they did the German edition of my book, Playbook for Progressives. Mm-hmm. I said, for a Jew, to be told this is the German edition is like telling a black person that this is the white edition. You know, I grew up hating Germans. Right. And it didn't mean, of course, I understood they were anti-Nazi uh, Germans. But, you know, so the point is that what isn't said by Israel is that most of the Jews at the beginning of Zionism were socialists and communists. We were secular, our people. We were, you know, we were not looking for a homeland in somebody else's land. We were looking to overthrow czarism or overthrow uh, European capitalism. So how Zionism hijacked not just the religion of Judaism, but the whole secular traditions yeah. of Jews and blacks, which is a very deep connection in this country, the, how they've hijacked everything. And back to your point about delegitimization, is that's what's happening now again. This is really great, right? Where Netanyahu is saying, you can take me to the Hague. I don't care where you're taking me. We are going to keep killing Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is forcing him into a political position that exposes a lot of the lies. Mm-hmm. So as a theologian, I do agree with the concept of delegitimization. Yes. Why don't you keep going on this? Because there's a lot of great concepts in your article. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me more about the ideology of the settler state, because that's you talk about. We talk about settler colonialism. For a lot of our listeners, just they think they know, but tell them more. Well, I mean, if if, if you listen to the opening statement of um, the minister of you know, justice from South Africa, his opening statement in The Hague. Right. And also his statement uh, at the press conference after that three-hour presentation. Um, I mean, you would listen to the reason. He, he says, we are here because we believe in the oneness of humanity. Right. We believe in the, the dignity of all people. That's why we are here. It's not necessarily a call out, but it's a call in to humanity, right? To see how can we just lean on saying to each other, Saubona, 
right? I see you. I see your humanity. I see your dignity. I see your humanity, right? And then after we, uh, we then say Saubona, we then borrow a phrase from the First Nations uh, of the Americas uh, and with a question saying, how are the children? Right. You put those two together, right? You then understand why South Africa felt that uh, we were compelled because we have seen this before, right? right? Because South Africa and many African countries were subjected and subjugated by settler colonization. This spirituality and theology that God has chosen these European settlers to come and civilize, you know, us, uh, almost like come and legitimize our existence while in the same breath they want to take our breath away, you see, uh, by way of having their knees of settler colonization on our necks. France just left Niger, right, in terms of that. So, so that's the settler, right. you know, uh, colonization that's been going on in South Africa since the 1400s. Right, exactly. Right, Vasco da Gama, that's the right. 1600s, Jan van Riebeck, right. Uh, and then in 1948, okay, you know, we now see how that then transitioned into military occupation. It took place then too because all over, I mean, even if you go to Namibia, you see the forts, you know, that, that settlers built, right. right, you know, to fortify themselves. And then, of course, then to protect themselves, you know, the, uh, the military, you know, occupation. So that's the playbook. That was the playbook here. And uh, in the United States, there was a playbook uh, in the Americas. Uh, that's the playbook on the continent in Asia. Then colonization and this occupation, right? You then uh, begin to institutionalize all of these social, cultural ecosystems. Right. And you now continue to deepen and broaden the marginalization by having now institutions, you see, take care of that. And you do whatever you can then to co-opt as many as possible of those who've been oppressed into that system so that they can then manage, if you will, that, uh, uh, that system. So I, I say that uh, because Israel read the playbook, yes. you see, of what happened in the United States. Let me say North America, Central and South America. And uh, they read the playbook of what happened on the continent of Africa. And so I'm not surprised that when they see the move in 1948 of what's happening in South Africa, right? Yes. Uh, But not just that. Remember 1948, something happens in the United States too with our Japanese sisters and brothers. That was in 1948 too, right? So we have to understand that settler colonization and military occupation does not take place in isolation because people share notes. Here in the U.S., they call it the Willie Lynch letter that was sent around, you see, so that folk can know how to subjugate or subdue those who are on plantations. Well, the voice you're hearing is Reverend Kevin Sauls, and he's preaching the gospel of liberation. (laughs) And I had a thought, you know, this is sort of, the whole kind of fabric of settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. I was just reading, I didn't realize that, that already the United States and Germany have opposed the South African 
charges. They say it's baseless, has no merit. I've been working a lot on the, the reality that Germany is still Nazi. And as my mother said, where did all those Nazis go? The day after Hitler was defeated, nobody's a Nazi, Eric. So it's interesting that Germany is one of the strongest supporters of Israel. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Germany in Africa, which I know a little bit about, but the reason I want our listeners to listen is what Reverend Saul is talking about is from 1400, this whole European master race, genocide, annihilation, settler colonialism, has so many intersections. So tell us about Germany and Africa. So when you add that to settler colonialism, you, you have to add the fact that a God has been fabricated, right? right to bring justification to that. Right. You know, uh, uh, because even in the United States too, you know, when the Puritans landed on, as Malcolm Wagner and Plymouth Rock, you're right. right. It was, we had the chosen people in terms of that. And so we've been sent here, right. uh, you know, we're still looking for, you know, where the assignment, you know, who, who, who signed the assignment for y'all to come, right. you know, right. <laughs> to do all this. But anyway, one has to realize that uh, a couple of things, the Protestant, or I should say the Reformation, you know, uh, takes place in Europe. Uh, which is almost like a, you know, a spiritual revival revolution. But that threatens your established state churches, such as the Lutheran Church in Germany, such as the Catholic Church, right? And so that was almost like a version of liberation theology in terms of the Catholic oh. Church in Central and South you know, uh, America. Uh, and so what then takes place is folk are then being victimized you see, and there's just this departure or relocation of people who are running away from persecution, right. you see. And so that's where the fabrication or the narrative start. You know, because you are being persecuted elsewhere, I'm going to send you as a chosen people to the land I've chosen for you somewhere else, right. which uh, for many of those uh, communities was South Africa. Right, you have in the midst of all of that the fall of uh, Nazism, but you have to understand the fall of Nazism catalyzed the rise of apartheid. Right, you see, because apartheid is nothing but uh, white nationalism. Right, in terms of that, the the fall of Germany, right? The Nazis had to go somewhere. The creation of this perverted version of Calvinism then finds a home in South Africa. Right. right, And that's how they get there. And they come with this super race mentality and all things uh, white is right, you know, around that. So that's really that German connection. But, right. but then you also have a Dutch connection there. Right? Yeah, yeah. You also have an English connection there. And so, but all of those connections, I mean, you have to remember, these are all just versions of an, a disintegrated Roman Empire right. that has imploded. You see, and you have these different kingdoms, but the, the kingdom uh, in, that became Portugal, the kingdom that became France, the kingdom that became uh, the United Kingdom, right? The kingdom that became Germany, you know, the kingdom in, you know, Scandinavian countries, right? It's all the result of an imploded and disintegrated Roman Empire. Disintegration didn't mean 
that there was a reformation, if you will, of mind, body, and spirit. It was just, we're just going to do what we've been taught to do just in various places in Europe and then to realize that, oh, there are other places too right. that we can go. We can go from York and create New York. Right. Just the lack of creativity. <laughs> God. Right. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah right. You, you have a ladysmith, right, in the UK, and then there's a ladysmith in, I mean, at least get another name, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and then the change of uh, the falls in, you know, in Zimbabwe to Victoria Falls. All of just the breaking of language and, and the, 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 the destruction of land and landscapes, right? It's all part of uh, how this migration takes place. And that's the same playbook, right? That's the same, you know, th those who were part of that playbook in Germany, you know, uh, and in Europe, were the same ones, 100 years, <laughs> I believe, or so, before 1948, that's right. that began the narrative around this particular place for a chosen people. Just listen to the words, right. a chosen people, by God, for God. I mean, you know that they tried to do that in Uganda, right? Right. And it didn't work. Right. You see what I'm saying? And so, as always, the United States needed an uh, outpost, right. you see, in the Middle East. And that's really what Israel is. Mm. They needed a militia right. to facilitate that. Right. And that militia is, you know, the glorified, you know, Israeli Defense Force. So let me ask, go ahead, Channing, to your point, and then I want to ask one question about where we're going. Well, sure. I just, I just realized that the pattern that you're painting is really interesting because... What you're talking about is disintegration of people, and then from Europe, that looks different than from the Americas, and it looks different from Africa, right? So, like, as a good example is, what you're saying is the disintegration of the Roman Empire became France, uh, England, Germany, and all of these fascist countries. But it's interesting when I think about my own people, for example, like the official story is that they were stolen from Africa and they were brought to the Americas. And one ship got into a rebellion and they took over the ship and they landed in St. Vincent. But then they didn't just have disintegration and then go to St. Vincent saying we're taking over St. Vincent. They merged with the people and formed a whole new culture and a whole new alliance. And so. It, just uh, for me, it's a noticing and like wanting to figure out what is this pattern where you know Africans come from different parts of the world, even if they disintegrate, and then they create something new that is unified and solid, rather than coming and saying that we, the chosen people, were coming to take over. But Europe, on the other hand, if they disintegrate, they go somewhere, then they try to take over. You're right. I mean, it's, it's a totally different worldview. Right, uh, uh, anthropologically, you know, uh, we just wired differently. And that's why I am persuaded and convinced that that which infected and affected Europeans, both as they were building this inhumane empire, and then because of uh, moral decay, right. you know, that resulted in that integration, as all of that is going on, at the heart of all of it is the fact that it is uh, homicidal and suicidal. Hence the disintegration. So here we are during King Weekend and Dr. King talked about the fact that we still have a choice. 
you know, we have a choice between nonviolent coexistence or violent co-inhalation. Consistently, it's clear, Channing, that, uh, that those who subscribe to uh, fascist, nationalist, supremacist ideologies choose violent co-inhalation. Well, let's talk about right now, uh, January 15th, 2024. We just came from uh, we being Channing Martinez and Kuna Uka and Monolade Walker and uh, Kim Maxwell and myself. Phenomenally successful day at yes. King Day where people, the books they bought were How Europe Undeveloped Africa, Blacks Against Empire, Red Star Over China, 10 copies of Eric Mann's Playbook for Progressives, Angela Davis's, um, I'll just say Race, Class, and Gender, I know that's not the right exact name, and Black Reconstruction in America, Black Bolshevik by Harry Haywood. It was great. So here's the point. What are we going to do? I was reading some statements by King on Palestine and Israel right before he died. In my opinion, they were fairly weak. Mm-hmm. You know, he was saying, well, I believe in Israel's right to exist and this and that. And I said to my wife, Leanne, he was under tremendous pressure. Mm-hmm. And yes. I bet you he decided he can't take on Vietnam and Israel at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then I read an article that said the exact same thing. So my point is, there's a cost. Here's what I'm saying. We can write and say whatever we want, but there's a cost. There's mm-hmm. repression. How do we build a movement, let's talk about in the black community, to reestablish Dr. King's anti-colonialism, independence of the Democratic Party. We say genocide, Joe, but there's a cost. Uh, The president of Harvard was driven out, Mm -hmm. and uh, they're trying to get rid of uh, APAC, have millions and billions of dollars if they can, to get rid of AOC. And so what, in your life, are the costs? What are the pressures? What are you trying to figure out? Because everybody can say things, but there's a cost in America, right? What are some of the costs you're trying to weigh? Because you're saying some great stuff. Well, I mean, I think for me, um, the cost is the oneness of humanity that is at stake here. Ubuntu is at stake. The fact that we are all that sense of mutuality that Dr. King, uh, when he writes that letter from, from Birmingham, from Birmingham right. jail. The cost I'm weighing is the, <clears throat> the centuries-long campaign by settler colonialism and military occupation that has caused the internal disintegration of mankind. Right. That's the cost for me. And how we've been made to be indifferent to that. Well, I mean, what's happening right now, the atrocities that we see, this genocide that we are seeing, it's one thing is clear. You cannot break and oppress people from the inside out. That's right. You have to break them from the outside. That's the right. cost for me is that internal breaking, right? That so many of our ancestors did not allow them to get to. Right. You see, uh, whether they're in South Africa, whether the United States, 
you know, or even our First Nations, our First Peoples are still here. They're standing tall and they're right. standing strong. Right. Right. And, they, and they're saying, you know, truth crushed into the ground shall rise again. And that's why I named the article a moral might over right. military might. And some folk, you know, sent me some notes saying, well, I think that moral thing has, you know, uh, you know, that's gone and forgotten. They don't, they don't think about that. Well, <clears throat> I disagree with that because I've seen how that moral might, you know, re-emerge in history, right? How it re-emerged through Harriet Tubman, how it re-emerged through those women who said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. How it re-emerged in the young people in South Africa in 1976, right? It just continues to re-emerge, and that's why King says the moral arc, right, you see, of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So the cost for me is not to continue to bend it, right? If I should not do that, right. who, who needs to do that? Who's going to do that? And I think that's my obligation to humanity, right? right? Uh, the dignity, the humanity of kinfolk, but also the integrity of creation, because we're all kin, you know, uh, in all of this. Uh, article just came out in terms of just what the atrocities, these 200-pound bombs funded by the United States, approved through the White House, not even Absolutely. gone through Congress, right? That's right. I try to get it out in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> you know? But you see, you do that because there's chaos there, right? When there was chaos in the United States with what happened during the internment camps, Israel and South Africa got together and they formed the apartheid regime and they formed Israel. So where there's chaos somewhere where there's supposed to be moral leadership, destruction, uh, discrimination, racism, then flourishes. So I think the cost is not saying anything. That's right. That's why King says the measure of a person is not measured when things are going okay, but it, it's measured where you are dealing with controversy and you're dealing with atrocities and you're dealing with genocide. And this is how we ought to measure Joe Biden right now. Right. In 2024, we don't need a choice between evil and lesser evil. Right. Last I checked, you know, it's a fight between good and evil, not evil and lesser evil. So I just have a lot of trepidation of thinking about even discerning how to exercise my vote for a person who goes around and hugs the butcher of Gaza. That's right. Right? Uh, who goes around and fist bumps our leaders and dictators who dismembers journalists around us. Yeah, maybe people are right. This is a choice between evil and lesser evil, right? I don't want that choice. No. Democracy don't need that choice. And so that's the cost. Reverend Saul, thank you so much. I mean, this has been great. We believe at the Strategy Center, we believe on Voices, that the moral and intellectual war the battle of ideas is, in fact, the central uh, war in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you win the battle of ideas, you'll get the force. You'll figure out the force. And, and it's a soul force. That's what King talks about. That's right. what Reverend Lawson believes. I mean, talks. Right. It's a soul force. Right. It's a force that creates an external ecosystem based on that internal soul force that we are invited to rediscover, redevelop, and urgently redeploy. Great to have you on Voices from the Frontlines. We'll have you back soon. Thank you.
take good care of yourself. All right. Oh, I have to just say, I am a member of the Surajin Soul Center. Good. Right? You you are my, my membership is still... Of the Bus Riders <laughs> Union. That's right. <laughs> that's, well, that's great. That's great. That's a big... Definitely put that on the show. You're a member of the Strategy and Soul. You're a member of the Bus Riders Union. And you're a cool guy, too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for everything. Thanks so much. Appreciate okay. it. The conversation you just heard was with Pastor Kelvin Sauls and Eric Mann on this article, Moral Might Over Military Might. You can check our website on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com if you want to listen to this uh, whole interview all over again. And obviously on our website, we'll also have a transcript so you can actually read the interview as well. The next thing on Voices is that we're going to have Eric singing Johnny Ace. Uh, pledging my love. So hey everybody, uh, Eric Mann. You know, I got to up my um, repertoire. I'm working on some things so when I'm ready. But obviously my core performances in music, which is singing along, which I like, I'll occasionally do an acapella or a, what do you call it, a karaoke. I like singing along because that's what I do when I walk with my headphones. and So the song I'm about to sing you is uh, Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace. And, you know, one of the things that about the great R&B songs and, um, you know, Rhapsody in Black, which is one of the all-time great shows, is a bunch of us were alive and 12, 15, 18... You know, in our teens, when these songs came out, so they shaped our romantic understandings of ourselves and our early uh, whatever, our early sexuality and our early uh, concept of romance. So uh, with that, I'm going to sing along with Johnny Ace in a great song called Pledging My Love. me, darling, your love in return, may your fire in my soul, dear, wherever burn, my heart set your command, dear, to keep love at home, making you happy is my desire, dear. Keeping you is my goal I'll forever love you The rest of my days I'll never part from you And your loving ways Do 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 My heart said, your command, command dear, 
to keep love and to hold Making you happy is my desire, dear Keeping you is my goal I'll forever love you The rest of my days I'll never part from you And your loving ways Boom, 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 boom Boom, 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 boom. for you and your brother just gonna meet some friends which friends i don't want you running the street with no hooligans you hear me francis my brethren's i mean no hooligans mom will you learn to talk like that ain't no hooligans not in this house i taught you to speak the queen's english better than that all right i'll come home for dinner take your brother with you why Welcome back to KPFK and Voices from the Front Lines, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles, 98.7 FM, Santa Barbara, and Ridgecrest and China Lake. This is Channing Martinez, your co-host. I'm in studio again with Eric Mann. The trailer you just heard is this film that came out. It's new to me, but apparently it came out in 2022, and it's called Brother on Netflix, and it's... Uh, directed by Clement Virgo. And if you can imagine, this, in my view, is almost like a different version of Moonlight, which I think is really interesting. Um, What I did, because oftentimes on Saturdays I want to see a film about queer life, uh, sometimes naively to, you know... um, validate my own life and figure out what, how do you reflect on the life of a queer person within you know, this society. And so that is what this film is. It's a coming of age film. And it really is, on paper, it sounds pretty banal. It's about the up and coming life of a black family, um, for a lack of a better word, right? Um, And so let me tell you who the characters are, because there are about four or five main characters. There is the little brother, and this is the main character that the film follows around throughout from the beginning to the end. And his uh, name is Michael, played by Lamar Johnson. The big brother, um, Francis, played by Aaron Peer. There is the girlfriend, Aisha, played by Kiana Medina. Um, And this is the girlfriend of the little brother. Um, I'll go into that a little bit. There is their mom, played by Marsha Stephanie Blake, and her name in the film is Ruth. And then there's the boyfriend, uh, played by Lavelle Adams Gray, and in the film is Jelly. Now, 
before I even get into the relationships, is this film is set in Toronto, and it's a Jamaican family that has moved to Toronto, and there's allusions to some conflict happening in Jamaica that causes them to move to Toronto, but they don't go into that detail because that's not what the story is about. But the overall theme that follows them is this level of historical trauma that everyone is figuring out how to deal with. The brothers are figuring out how to deal with. The mom is dealing with her own trauma. Um, the girlfriend is dealing with their own trauma. And then eventually the boyfriend is dealing with his trauma of losing his boyfriend. Um, now, what's interesting about the film is in the way that it starts, it begins to what you think go down the stereotypical Hollywood film. Older brother defends younger brother because there's something wrong with younger brother and he doesn't quite fit in. Um, and for my assumption for most of the film is maybe the younger brother is gay. Um, we find out later on that he's not. Um, and in fact that the older brother is gay. And to flip the script even more, the older brother who is gay um, is the brother that does not fit in and, you know, is sort of, I don't like to call it this way, but he's the bad kid, right? I mean, he is in school and he cusses out the teacher because he doesn't agree with the teacher, right? Um, he goes and he hangs out in the rap scene that's up and burgeoning, right? Um, and how that even happens while being gay, I have no idea. Um, he is leading his brother all throughout the film, which I think is a metaphor to climb this electrical pole without getting electrocuted and seeing sort of the larger picture, um, which is what the film is really about. Um, and the younger brother, who is shy, and he is heterosexual, um, you know, he doesn't fit in. Um, he keeps to himself. And at the end of the film, you realize that this story isn't really about the older brother. Whereas Moonlight, in one realm, is about how do you grow up as a black queer man dealing with bullying, and it really follows the mindset of that queer black person and you know how do they think and you know all the great things that come with Moonlight. This film awkwardly follows the brother who is not gay and how is he understanding his own family from how is he understanding his mother, how is he understanding his brother, and how is he understanding his own relationship. Um, and I thought that's a really interesting concept. So here's, here is what happens. They are growing up. The brother gives a lot of trouble in school. He walks out of school, threatens to drop out of school. Um, they live in the hood in Toronto. And so, as you can imagine, there are gang activities and drug sales all throughout the neighborhood. And while they are not directly involved in that, because there is a big incident that happens in their neighborhood, and they are black, and they're young men, they become involved because the police are going in the neighborhood and shaking everyone down. Um, and so there's really horrendous scenes where in fact, they are coming from a walk, just talking about life, and all of a sudden they have to duck down because there's gunshots going through. Um, and that entails an incident where someone is shot and killed for being in the wrong neighborhood. 
that sets off a whole chain of events where the police now are then turning their neighborhood into a war zone and shaking everyone down. Um, and so one of the scenes shows the bigger brother you know, in his barbershop, because the barbershop is the hangout spot, and the police come and shake it down, um, just like they've done in the Mangrove uh, Inn um, at that same time, right, in Britain, right? Um, and you can already, already see that there is tension between how the older brother deals with the police. Um, and that is also when you learn about his sexuality. Um, now, here's the spoiler alert, is that happens three more times. And on the third time, the older brother is shot by the police for no reason. Um, they come into the barbershop and he's had it. Why do you keep coming in here, shaking us down? There are no criminals in here. He confronts the officer and officer, you know, does not hang around black people, does not know black people, and pulls out his gun and he shoots him. And that happens pretty early in the film. And so the rest of the film then goes through this trauma that has happened of how the mother, you know, deals with her son being shot by the police. And ostensibly, it deals with our own trauma that we think that you have to be a gang member to be shot by the police, or you have to fit into this mold to be shot by the police. And it really clarifies that everyone in the black community is under the purview of police murder and of subjugation. So it's a really beautiful film. I encourage you to go see it, um, but I encourage you to be ready for emotions because it's very much an emotional roller coaster. What was the main emotional impact on you? You know, I'm still deciphering what that emotional impact is. Because I'm, I'm shocked because I am an older brother and gay, <laughs> but I did not defend my own brother, right? Um, so I think for me, I wasn't that sad that the older brother was shot, but... I just, it reaffirms to me, like, why we're doing this work, that, you know, this is a war zone. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was happy that uh, you and I saw Moonlight together. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember cool. That. And uh, Hollywood, before, I think before Arclight went out of business. Before Arclight, yeah. Pre-COVID, right? Yeah. So, I think that, you know, one... There's so many themes on voices from the front lines, but I think not just black films, but films about black, gay, and lesbian, you know, trans, you know, is is very important part of what you and I talk about, and especially when we see good films like that. Uh, so thanks a lot. That was cool. Thank you. So, in case you don't know it. Uh, the strategy center has 170 staff, <laughs> but 150 of them are me and Channing. So we just act like we got a lot of people. So luckily we have a Kuna Uka too, and I want to talk to you about a very important event that we want you to come to. Uh, first of all, put in your book already. Thursday night, February 1st, the 32nd day of Black History Year. Oh, the first day of Black History Month. And we were happy to do it on that Thursday because the Pan-African Film Festival is coming up 
about the seventh or eighth. So we didn't want to compete with that. Okay, so it's called The Great Debaters. Phenomenal film. Then you're going to see a debate between two great debaters, Akuna Uka, the director of the New Road School debate team, and Eric Mann from the Cornell University debate team before a lot of you were born. But uh, let's talk about the film. I don't know if you've seen it before. It's a sensational film, so let's start there. This is in my top 25 political films, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Okay, so what is it about? It's well, The first thing it's starring Denzel Washington. But So we start out the strategy in Seoul, Thursday night, revolutionary organizing film and book club is proud to begin the year with the film showing of the great debaters. If you want tickets, you're going to go on www.thestrategycenter.org. Okay, The Great Debaters is a brilliant political film. It's a story of Wiley College, a historically black college and university in Marshall, Texas, debate team, initiated and coached by Melvin B. Tolson, played by Denzel Washington, a college professor by day and a communist organizer of sharecroppers by night. The core narrative is the story of the greatest debate team in U.S. history, uh, and the finals of the film is Black Wiley's debate with White Harvard for the national championship. The screenplay is by Robert Eisel, based on the article by Tony Sherman. It has a sensational cast. The debate team is Samantha Book, a black woman in 1935, played by Janae Smollett, Henry Lowe, played by Nate Parker, and James Farmer Jr., played by Denzel Whitaker, and James Farmer Sr., played by Forrest Whitaker. I'll expand the description of you as we get closer to the February film showing, but what a great film about the cultural, political, gender, and class unity and struggle inside the black community, the role of intellect and debate in training the mind, and shockingly, a film that shows a communist in such an attractive light. Although no matter which character Denzel plays is phenomenally attractive. Join us for a great film evening and a debate with Ukuna, Uka, and myself, who will be debating, but are on the same team. Eric Mann. So just a couple more thoughts. So finally, I think it's really important for Voices listeners to come out and go to stuff. I mean, this is going to be an amazing evening, and we have an exciting new communist development, which is uh, Jenny Martinez's popcorn machine, which has <laughs> become the biggest hit on King and Crenshaw. So you got to come and get your popcorn along with the film. And in the last minutes we have, I want to segue. This Saturday... January 20th from 1 p.m. to 3.30 at the Culver Palms United Methodist Church. There's a KPFK fundraiser, and it's featuring special guests, including Jeff Cohen, Reverend Janet McKinnon, Maureen Cruz, John Parker, S.D. Chandler, and so many more people, including the Strategy Center, me and Eric. And it's hosted by Frank Durrell. 
you know KPFK can't do anything without politics, so obviously this fundraiser is about the current times. What can KPFK do to support the anti-war movement? And where is the anti-war movement going? Two very heavy, heavy questions. And if you want to get tickets, you can go to kpfk.org right now and purchase tickets. And the premise of Voices from the Front Lines is do it. On February 1st, come to see the uh, great debaters. This Saturday, you'll see me and Channing will be there. And let's turn out for KPFK and enjoy the afternoon. I'm going to read you the introduction to my article, Dr. King is Marching with the People of Palestine, uh, that was published on King Day by Counterpunch. So the other thing I just want to preface it is that, you know, I, I was the primary writer, but I, uh, on all the stuff I write, my wife Leanne Hurstman and I work with such political partners, we've been together for almost 50 years. We can both finish each other's sentences and we'll debate each other's sentences, but she's not just a good editor, a good comrade. Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee constructed the civil rights and black liberation movements on a foundation of third world internationalism. Now the struggle of the black nation and the people of Vietnam for self-determination became inseparable. Channing Martinez, a black Garifuna leader of the Labor Community Strategy Center in South Central, observed, Palestine is all Vietnam. Israel's ongoing genocide against the people of Palestine has moved to a new stage. The plan for the mass annihilation of the Palestinian people as Israel's, quote, final solution to the Palestinian problem. Most of you know that, but that was Hitler's term the final solution to the Jewish problem was wiping out the Jews. Israel is terrified that as long as the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank exist, it will only be a matter of time before the Palestinians' moral challenge to the immorality of the Zionist settler state will prevail. Today, Palestinian resistance is shaping the politics of the entire world. In the endless struggle between the U.S. and Europe, and Israel on the one side against the third world and the whole world, the Palestinian resistance is on the offensive. The government of South Africa is bringing formal charges of genocide against the Israeli government in front of the international uh, court at the, in The Hague. Netanyahu and Israel are defiant, telling the U.S. and Europe nobody will stop us. But many Israeli leaders, for the first time, understand that the support from their U.S. and European imperialist defenders is eroding. Israel, their proxy, is now a liability in the U.S. fading hopes for Middle East domination. There are significant forces in the U.S. establishment that are speaking out against Israel and resigning in protest over U.S. support for the Israeli genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza. The mass movements in support of Palestine are the strongest in U.S. history, as demonstrations in Washington were so powerful they caused the evacuation of the White House. Joe Biden has now joined the ranks of the notorious child killer LBJ as Genocide Joe. 
the U.S., Israel, and the American Israel Political Action Committee and its allies are working to punish, isolate, and crush the resistance, such as the president of Harvard, such as the squad. Oblivious to history, they do not grasp that their ugly repression exposes them as the barbarians they are. In turn, the Palestinian black and immigrant insurgencies will shape the entire conversation inside the U.S. 2024 presidential elections as the system is deteriorating into chaos and two-party fascism. While the white voters will debate between Trump and Biden as the best way to protect imperialist whiteness, the civil war inside the U.S. is intensifying. So many black, Latinx, Asian, Pacific Islander, indigenous, Arab, Muslim, and anti-racist whites are strengthened by having a clear international cause. Once we chanted, one side's right, one side's wrong, we're on the side of the Viet Cong. Today we chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. At the height of the world influence on April 4th, 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke out against the war in Vietnam, beyond Vietnam, breaking the silence. He stood up to the U.S. war machine. He called the U.S. the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He supported the Vietnamese communists as fighting for a revolutionary government seeking self-determination. The system that had once pretended to appreciate him turned on him as they had Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois and made it his life a living hell. On the other hand, people of conscience all over the world, black organizers trying to change the world, and the people of Vietnam were eternally grateful. Today, the victims of the Nakbar are creating a catastrophe for the U.S. and European white settler states. And just to tell you, I'm reversing the concept, the Nakba means the, the catastrophe. So now we hope it's a catastrophe against the United States. For the Palestinian comrades in Gaza and the West Bank and those in the world movement to free Palestine, the lives of work of Dr. King can offer hope in your historical struggle for self-determination. Palestine will win. Palestine will be free. This is Eric Mann. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Front Lines. As always, go onto our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and sign up for our newsletter where you will receive an email weekly with the newsletter of what's going to be on the show and a follow up email with the link to the podcast of the show. KPFK needs your help. And as you know, we're moving into FunDrive pretty soon. Call 818 985 5735 to give a charitable contribution to KPFK and join us this Saturday, January 20th from 1 to 3.30 at the Culver Palms United Methodist Church and purchase tickets to the event to support KPFK. As always, we want to hear from you. Email us at eric or channing at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. This is your co-host Channing Martinez and we will see you next week. All power to the people. And saw it through without exemption. I-